When I say these things, that like the reactions I've had in the past that are most comparable are when I was studying extremist groups, should tell us something. Hi there from the UK. How are you all? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by the Mighty Kraken, the best place to buy, sell, and trade Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got an interview with Coindesk writer and journalist Lee Quinn. But before that, I do have a message from my amazing sponsors. Make sure you check them out. So first up today, I've got my new sponsor, Casa. And after a long overdue review of my security, I decided to sign up for Casa's Keymaster. And then I approached Casa's CEO, Nick Newman, and suggested that we work together. So it's been on the back of my mind for quite a while that I needed to level up my security. So this week I signed up and I've got my setup book for later this week. I'm planning on talking through my experience using Casa and sharing it with all of you. Also, just a note, I paid for Casa myself. So despite Nick offering to do it for me for free, I wanted to experience the cost trade-off as objectively as possible. I always try with my sponsors to be a customer if possible. I am a customer of Kraken. I am a customer of BlockFi. I was a customer of Dropbit. So I always try to be a customer and use their products as objectively as possible. So thanks, Nick. Thanks for the offer. But yes, I wanted to see the cost trade-off myself. Anyway, if you want to find out more, please do head over to Casa. That is at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Also today we have Sportsbet. Have you checked them out yet? They are the best place for online gaming and they also accept Bitcoin. And I also can announce that the second What Bitcoin Did Poker Tournament is booked for this Sunday, the 14th of June. It is 7pm GMT, 8pm London. There will be one Bitcoin in prizes and a 50 MBTC bounty on my head. There is an entry fee of 200k sats, which is about $20, but the first 500 people who sign up do get a free Watford shirt, and Watford is the team with the Bitcoin logo on their shirt. So if you want to sign up and claim your free shirt and join the tournament, please head over to my website. It's whatbitcoindid.com forward slash sportsbet, which is forward slash S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T. And if you want to find out more about Sportsbet, head over to sportsbet.io, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O. Okay, so onto the show today. And finally, I have Lee Quinn on to discuss journalism and Bitcoin narrative. This is a show I've wanted to make for a while. We met up in New York a while back and discussed some ideas around a show. And uh, the role of journalism in Bitcoin can be challenging. So it was natural to try and get Leon as a topic to discuss. You see, our job is not just to be a cheerleader for Bitcoin, but it's to peel back the layers, to critically think and challenge ideas. And while we might not be head buried in the technical side of things, understanding bits, most of the time people like Lee and I are probably looking at different areas and there's a lot of topics to cover. So trying to be an expert in all of them is super difficult. But we're here to critically challenge ideas, critically think about ideas. One of the challenges of this is you put things out there and people might agree, they might reject your ideas, but it also can come with some like quite in-your-face harassment. I, I keep a folder of all the things people say to me. It's quite funny. I'll probably release it sometime. But I think my approach to knows or discussing that the two coins with the name Bitcoin in the title on the Coinbase homepage is something which has highlighted this for me because these are ideas that I just want to discuss. I wanted to challenge why so people are using those, and I think I have valid points. And I also want to challenge the fact that when newcomers head over to our website like Coinbase, they will see both Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash and will be confused. Look, I know factually they get confused because I've taken the vocals and dealt with it. And sometimes rather than having objective conversations about this, many people will attack or mock or even discredit the work. But it doesn't stop someone like myself. It doesn't stop someone like Lee because we know it's important that these things are thought through, that they are discussed. And also, I am right on both of those issues. So anyway, I've followed Lee's work for a long time, and I've seen too how she has too tried to critically think through some ideas and at the same time has been criticised and attacked. 
which in some ways makes me support her even more. I, I love the work she does. And I think it's okay to be wrong or it's okay to challenge assumptions. And and those topics which create the biggest debate are often the most interesting, even if it does see a strong response from the Bitcoin immune system. Now, I get it. I get it that there needs to be a hard line and aggressive approach sometimes from hardcore Bitcoiners and the importance of that and what it's done in the past. There are many scams out there or dodgy projects or people with questionable intentions. And being a firm with these people can be really helpful, but it can also shut down conversations or put people off, especially in areas which are valid, which which do need discussing. So, yeah, I'm glad I got Lee on. It was great to talk about this and talk about journalism within the Bitcoin industry. And if you've got any questions about the show, you can reach out to me. You know you can. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. If you want something else to listen to this week, please do go and check out Defiance, my Steve Mnuchin uh, four-parter. The first part's out. That's it, defiance.new. Second part is going to be out on Wednesday. And as I said, any questions, you can reach out to me. It is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. So you've had weird, weirder years than this. I don't know if I'd say weirder, but equally weird. Damn, this is definitely my weird issue. <laughs> it's a, it's a bad one. It's a weird one. I mean, I've had bad years. I've had really bad years, but this is this is the weirdest one. What do you make of it all, right? Because the funny thing is, like, you're a journalist, and I'm a, I wouldn't put myself in the similar category as uh, journalists as you because I'm not as professional, but... Like I think when you're a journalist of any sort, when when crazy stuff goes off, you, you don't just stick within your lane, right? You, you're observant of everything else going on. What do you make of everything right now? Well, you don't stick within your lane for your job, right? Because your job is to talk to other people. But definitely, we all see like a very clear perspective. And I think when something like this happens is when you start to realize how narrow your perspective has been. Uh, for a lot of people, this felt really inevitable. Um, they they see this as like a final straw while for others they see it as like a new thing like as if this movement has nothing to do with 2016. I covered the election in 2016 and for me this is just basically been deja vu for a few months which is weird. So you, you think this is this is a, like a follow-on from the election this is all to do with what Trump? I don't think this is all to do with Trump, but I don't think one man is the most salient point of the political apparatus that was the 2016 election and elections in general. I mean, this is a really complex system, so it's not all about Trump, but certainly Trump rose to power during a broader shift that we are seeing continue today. So more about the apparatus of power, like I see that and this kind of this kind of them and us thing that's getting kind of worse the situations certain things have really stood out to me the the blatant stealing by people within government with the money printing the the insider trading that people like uh, Kelly Loeffler was doing that seems to have just gone uninvestigated and unpunished this rules for one rules for the other you see it's like a bigger thing do you think that i mean she's claiming she did nothing wrong do you think she did something wrong I think she definitely needs to be investigated. I think there's some massive coincidences going on there, which which I find highly, highly surprising if they are just coincidences. I think she's one of the most interesting figures in the crypto industry today. A former entrepreneur who has never pu- publicly said whether or not she owns Bitcoin, but circumstantially she ran a Bitcoin brokerage. It'd be a little bit silly if she'd never tried or didn't own any. She is one of the richest 
politicians in the United States today. Hands down, there's no argument about that. If you look at her career before this and even before crypto, um, she was also very focused on political science, community involvement. This is not a spontaneous thing. She has been working up the ranks in her local community as well, involved with all different kinds of organizations. So you see a woman who clearly structured her career towards achieving political power and did so, and did so with economic power. I personally despise a lot of her opinions and disagree strongly with many, many of her views. But I think she's one of the most, potentially one of the most powerful Bitcoiners in the world today, uh, which is a crazy thing to think, you know, like three years ago, if you were to talk about, you know, the most powerful politicians in the world today are potentially involved with our space and could influence the market, you would think we were crazy. We were just like a bunch of random weirdos from the internet. Mm, yeah, I know, I know. And, um, you know, when she got that senator position, I actually thought that was that was quite interesting. I, I, I didn't see that coming. But it wasn't just her. There was like four of them. She stood out to me because I knew her from being in the Bitcoin world. But um, there was like four of them who seemed to have done some very suspicious trading post-meetings regarding coronavirus. And I certainly think it needs looking into. I think, think that corruption in politics right now is the norm and not the exception. So it would not surprise problem, me dude. if all of the above. Then then that's kind of why perhaps we have so much unrest right now, is that ru- the, 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 the ruling elite getting to create the rules that, that end up kind of suiting their own agendas, supported by a brutal police state whereby everybody else seems to just complete. I watched this, actually, you know, it's way off my radar of someone I would ever think I'd be interested in, but I watched a long interview yesterday with Steve Bannon, and I don't care for Breitbart. I think I think they're quite, I think they have an agenda which they get to push, And but at the same time, the first half an hour of the interview, he talked about how the ruling elite get to make money on the way up and on, on the way down. He said, this isn't a left or a right thing. This is This is the political system. And I, it was really challenging for me to actually find myself agreeing with him. Luckily, he did go. He did descend in some of the the nonces, kind of right wing stuff later on, which made me glad that I didn't feel like I wanted to become a, a Steve Bannon fan. But he, but he was fundamentally correct about what is happening within the ruling elite and the political system. We have, you know, the Goldman Sachs alumni within. The, some of the biggest, most powerful seats in America. I mean, Steve Mnuchin, I'm going after myself right now, somebody who has routinely been involved in situations where assets strip in Sears from his foreclosure machine with One West, and now he's the guy with the most important economics job possibly in the world. I think th- I think all of these things, and I think you can, actually, I think you can throw other things in there. I think you can throw Weinstein in there. I think you can throw an Epstein in there. I think you can throw not just the ruling elite of like politics, but it's also the, the the kind of these rich fuckers who just get to get away with a lot of stuff. And I think everyone's fed up. Peter, I want to ask you something. Yeah, you sure. live in a system where you feel that the ruling elite abuse their wealth in order and accrue more power, right? That's that's what yeah. you feel right now. And here we have this invention of uncensorable money. What makes you think they're not going to do the same thing with the new money? Well, it depends what they're going to do with the new money. 
or what they can do with the loot. Like, are there more checks and balances in place, right? So we one thing we know they can't do is just print money. We know that's one thing they can't do, which is which is great, which is cool, which we know is is a good thing. Can they can they accumulate more Bitcoin in a just just hypothetically in a hyper Bitcoinization world? Say there's no fiat money anymore. There's only Bitcoin. Can they accumulate more of it and therefore um, exert more power and influence over people? Of course they can. They can. I don't think Bitcoin solves every, every single problem that that. And I, I don't even know if a Bitcoin world's better. I th I think there's certain aspects of it that are undoubtedly better. But ca ca can you? Is the root of the problem just the money printer, or is the root of the problem human greed, manipulation, power? I I I, I tend to think it's more the latter. Yeah, I I've become a little bit obsessed with this over the years. What is it? What's the problem? And I think the problem is us. But I don't think it's our biology because so many different factors, we act so many different ways. I think that we've created systems that encourage this kind of misbehavior and mismanagement. And the question is, is how to change systems because system, uh, <laughs> that's, that's much harder than removing a person. You know, you can blame a person, you know, like this, per all journalists are evil, all conservatives are evil, you know, whatever, and say we should just get rid of them. Uh, but then somebody else will be the next scapegoat for the reason that everything is going wrong. Maybe there are good people within all of these groups that aren't doing uh, the right thing because that opportunity isn't as accessible to them. And how do we make that opportunity more accessible to them? I think, yeah, I don't know the answer to that. Well, there's, there's flaws through everything. Yeah, there's flaws in politics. But there's flaws in journalism. I mean, you know, we're going to we're jumping we're jumping around here right a bit. But like, so on the U, in the UK at the moment, we only have one US news channel really on Sky. And guess it's which still one still one too many. Like it's American news is so bad. But if we if we want to find out what's going on, if you just want to sit in front of the TV and watch a bit, guess what? What is the main channel we have? Is it Fox? It's CNN. Oh. Oh okay, mm. and and I've been watching it going. Hold on, this isn't news. This is this is an anti-Trump channel, and once you realise it's an anti-Trump channel, you see the lens through how they report everything. And look, I, I'm I don't have a, a horse in the race here. I, I I have my things I like and don't like about Trump and the Republicans. Same about the Democrats. I can be as I can be pretty impartial. But I was, and I was watching it with my son last night, and I was saying to him, "Look, we have to be very careful watching this. This isn't independent, fact-based news. This has a lens of being very much supporting the Democrat Party, anti-Trump, anti-Republican." I had to try and explain that to him, and and so we have systematic problems that take us that go through politics, money, finance, business journalism like media like there's problems everywhere and and i think these riots are highlighting all of it all of it so i know a few of the people at cnn not a ton uh the people i know are actually really freaking good at their jobs so i wonder mm -hmm. how is it that the brand overall is producing so much bad content when it's so competitive to get in there and i know that they have some qualified people for sure and there's a lot of reasons why as a journalist, you might produce a piece that you're not proud of or that you think is very clearly biased. You're being hired by a company. You are being hired by a company for them to use your voice to project the message that will make them money. 
And bashing Trump is a really profitable message. Promoting Trump is also a very profitable message. We have Fox News as the equivalent to CNN. Yeah, of course. I think I think the thing about CNN, I think some of their investigative work has been kind of interesting. There are some bits I've liked. There's that guy, is it uh, Don Lemon? Yes. But see, my problem with him, he seems to go off on these rants that are very much politically motivated. And like, I get it now, I see it. But someone like my son could see that and think this is news and it isn't news. So I think most people don't understand the different kinds of journalists there are. And Don Lemon is a pundit. He is hired yeah. to express and represent an opinion. I am not a pundit. I might do um, a co- opinion columns sometimes. Sometimes I, I write opinion columns. But every opinion column has been a, uh, a rare occasion, a very specific occasion. It's not something that I do with my profession. Joe at Bloomberg, Joe Weisenthal, would be an example of someone who is also a pundit but is a lot more unbiased. He's a lot more scientific in his approach. And that's okay. Both of these people make their companies money and their audiences love them both or they wouldn't be there. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I guess for me, I'm, I'm just seeing across the board, Lid, like things that I'm just like, everything seems to be a bit of a mess. It is a mess. It's such a mess. Yeah. yeah. And it's like this. Have you seen? Um, have you seen the Aaron Aronofsky film, um, Mother? No, I haven't. Okay, so do you, do you do you know Aaron Aronofsky? He did Black Swan. Oh, okay, yeah. I think I think he did Black Swan and Pie. So he's done this film called Mother, and like a bit of a uh, you know, there's a bit of a give a bit of a way of the plot here, but it's worth seeing. The whole film's set inside a house. And you essentially see the complete breakdown of society from inside this house. Um, and it's a really interesting film. And when I watched it at the time, I, the first time I watched it, I was like, what the fuck did I just watch? And anyone else who's seen it is going to be nodding now. If they listen to this, they're going to go, yeah, I know exactly what you mean, Pete. And I had to watch it again. And ever since then, it's one of those films that's really stuck with me. A lot of people don't like the film, but I actually really like it because it's stuck with me because things happen in the world and i'm looking back like i can see the part of that film which is happening right now which is violent protests which is police brutality which is breakdown of society which is people not giving a shit about each other i'm not saying everyone but the film perfectly represents what is happening right now and it's like every situation every it just keeps getting a little bit worse a little bit worse and and I'm trying to think like where are we going to be in it within a year what what's going to happen in a year are we all going to be still on lockdowns are we going to have even more surveillance are we going to have even stronger power from the police like what you know, more people are going to be out of work like where is this all heading <laughs> I don't know I have zero ability to predict a year from now, which is weird and scary sometimes because I used to think I knew what I wanted to do for a few years and now the world changes so dramatically month to month or week to week even. But I think that you, you're noticing something that's there. There's definitely unrest and there's tension. You, you were talking before about it being unfair, right? And whether that's a problem of us or whether that's a problem of something else. I became really obsessed for a while, like a few years ago, reading uh, studies of different primates. And it turns out if you put two monkeys uh, next to each other and you give one a banana and you 
Like you train them both to do a thing and you pay one with a banana, one with a cucumber. The monkey that got the lesser deal will get really upset. If you give the other one two bananas and him only one banana, he'll get really upset. Like the idea of unfairness making us upset is very innate. It's ingrained in us. And when we think about Jane Goodall, you know, the scientist who is very, very famous for her groundbreaking work uh, studying primates, later on in her life, she realized that one of the problems that she had with her earlier studies is that the primates behaved completely differently when her camp moved closer to them with the bananas in order to study them, because now they went from a food source that no one controlled to a controlled food source that they were fighting for access to. And there was all this aggression and like the, the troops were like fighting and warring and they couldn't, they, they thought that they were witnessing something that was organic, but they realized that it only would start when they would start controlling the supply of wealth, which is for them bananas, right? Um, so when, in some ways that can make us really hopeful about Bitcoin, the idea of reducing the control on wealth, reducing circumstances in which we would be aggressive. But we're not sure whether that's actually how things are going to play out because there are just so many other factors right now. Um, Bitcoin is a, a small, small, small part of the broader economy and the broader system. We'll, we'll come to Bitcoin because there are some things I want to ask uh, you about that. And um, I actually found your interview with Marty Bent very interesting. And also, I've always enjoyed the fact that you um, you will challenge kind of standard thinking and You'll take it on the chin and go with it. So I do want I do want to get to that, but I'm just like even before I get to Bitcoin, because I don't subscribe to the Bitcoin fixes everything theory. I don't. I think Bitcoin can do some some really important things and have some really important change, like lead to important changes. Not even just in Bitcoin itself, but the the mindset of when you learn about Bitcoin and then you then you go down these other rabbit holes that make you really rethink life, etc. But I. I don't think everyone subscribes to that, and I don't think everyone will subscribe to that, and I don't think it fixes everything. And even if it does, it might be a multi-decade thing, and we have problems in front of us right now. Yeah, um, for sure. And also, sometimes, even personally, I sometimes wonder, am I helping the problem? Am I making it worse? I even That's really that. healthy. It's really healthy to question yourself, because I all the time don't know whether I'm doing the right thing. You just got to keep trying your best. Mm. All right, listen, look, at the, let, let, before we get to the uh, the Bitcoin stuff, you worked on this book, Cypherpunk Women. I do want to ask you a bit about it. Um, yeah, sure. So I've, I've skim read some of it and um, some of my favorite people in there. What, what's the background to this? How did you get involved? There's a lot of different kinds of content that don't make sense for a journalistic platform or for a nonfiction book. Laura Shin, for example, is working on an amazing nonfiction book about the crypto industry. Uh, Camila Russo worked on an amazing book um, about Ethereum, certainly with a different perspective than I have, but it's good that someone's out there writing and, and um, trying to share information. But there's just so many stories that like, you only really need 30 seconds to understand uh, this person's perspective, their value, uh, the value that Bitcoin has to them, the way they used it. You don't need a full article. You don't need a full novel. And all these different people have wildly different experiences with Bitcoin. And so I wanted to give people a space to express the way that they view Bitcoin in any format, not only nonfiction, not only an art piece, although some did do art pieces, just like, here's a, a blank canvas, do it. And I'll give you feedback and not let yourself, you embarrass yourself, feel free to go wild. And the result was the anthology. 
Yeah. Were there any particular pa- I'm going to tell you my favorite bit. I'm just going to dig it out. But were there any particular patterns you found? Well, yeah. I mean, these are all Bitcoiners, you know, so they uh, a lot of a lot of them believe the same things that a lot of Bitcoiners believe that this is a store of value, that this is going to change the world, that this is a cypherpunk technology. Um, there were some people that uh, disagreed with some aspects of, of that. The other day I was interviewing someone and he described Bitcoin to me as a volatile security, but that works as a money transmission software. And I was like, there are so many things in that sentence that are not usually what I applied to Bitcoin, but I can see where you're going with it. And for you, that's how you use it. You know, so there are definitely patterns or people who agree with each other on what Bitcoin is, but there's also people who don't agree with each other at all about what Bitcoin is. And that's okay. And that's great. And I think that was the most surprising thing was that I interviewed Bitcoiners a lot. And so I would come to questions thinking I might already know the answer. And then the answer would be something that I, like went a little bit to the left or to the right of what I expected. Interesting. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you my favorite bit. But actually, and it was right near the start, but it's with somebody I've had on my show before as well, which is Ali Eve Knox, which I know you're a big fan of hers as well. But And the, the, the reason I really like her use case as well is because it isn't about... Uh, speculation and number go up, blah, blah, blah. And I just did an interview with Ragnar where he was talking about, we seem to have got away with this idea of Bitcoin solving problems like censorship resistance problems, Yeah, which I know isn't popular. A lot of people just want hodl, hodl, hodl. But uh, I love this bit where she says, uh, Bitcoin for me hasn't been about shit posting on Twitter or flexing my maximalist muscles. It isn't, hasn't been about shitting on other coins and projects in the space either. It has strictly been about getting paid in a safe and quick manner. And I'm like, that makes so much sense because it is solving a problem now. It's, and there seems to be these two th- sides to Bitcoin. There is the shit I can't do because the government won't let me or because I get censored by banks, even though I'm doing something legal and you're solving a problem. And then there's this, like, this bigger, broader idea of taking down central banks. Now, the second one I'm not, and I know you got into that with Marty Bent, as much as people want it to happen, I don't know how easy it is or whether 100% it can happen. But I do know right now, sex workers can use Bitcoin to get paid. People in uh, foreign countries can use Bitcoin to buy things that maybe are deemed illegal. I was able to use it to buy cannabis oil for my mother. People are, people are able to get around what are moral judgments, and moral laws by government to do the things they want to be able to do. And that to me is like really cool because that's solving a problem right now, right here, right now. It is solving that problem right here, right now. The question of whether it will continue to be able to solve that problem for how many people it will be able to solve it for. Because the government doesn't like being evaded, right? The government's not like, oh, mm. thank goodness, you found a way to reject the things you've been trying to enforce. No. So when Bitcoin finds a hole to fill, the government will come and try and remove that functionality. And the question of if Bitcoiners can continue to diversify and outpace the government as certain use cases um, become more difficult is the question of whether Bitcoin will continue to have censorship resistance. And I think you can add to that how usable it is for people broadly and and how much actually also people really care. Like someone like Matt O'Dell or Marty Ben or Shinobi really fucking care. And and I and I love it. And they get Bitcoin to a level that I never will. And and it's it's really amazing to watch. But will we create is that going to be like a 1%, 2%, 10% of people? Will that ever become 50, 60% of people learning how to use Tor and CoinJoin and things like that? Would it all be abstracted away? I don't know. But what, I, what I'm saying is like it's, it's very obvious that we have 
uh, government overreach. It's very obvious that we're treated terribly by our governments. It's very obvious the the money system's completely corrupt and fucked. Are we yeah, treated terribly by our governments, though? Are, are we really suffering? There are people who are suffering at the hands of their governments. I'm not... I genuinely don't have an opinion. I don't know whether or not we suffer more in lawlessness or more under law. I... This is a question actually well, I grapple with. Okay, so that's a again, that's a separate point, and and I I want to talk to you about that as well because uh, that is that I've I've gone down that libertarian rabbit hole, but never become full libertarian. But uh, but like a lot of the ideas in it, but never actually got to the point where I, I I think will it be a better world? Like will society be better? I don't know. I'm not yet there yet. But what I'm saying is. I don't know if enough people will ever care that much about Bitcoin. I want them to. I want them to care like I do, right? I tell all my friends all the time. I post all my shows on Facebook. That's so evangelical. It's like, is there anything else in our lives? And I also talk to people about Bitcoin. Is there anything else in our lives that we're like, you know, TV shows? Maybe you're like, oh, I love this TV show. It's so great. Like, I've never gone up to someone and been like, PayPal is amazing. You've got to try it. (laughs) Oh, my God. PayPal is the shit. Actually, don't like Big at all. <laughs> uh, it, it can be useful, but, but the point being is, like, for I've been doing this show for what three years? I can't even remember now. Maybe is it? Yeah, three years. Say it's three years. Every one of my friends know I, I have a Bitcoin show, right? Every one of them, and I, everybody knows there's a, two shows that come out. Well, actually, I don't post them all on Facebook, but the most interesting ones is like, oh, have you seen the Social Network? I've got the twins who are in that. That you might find this interesting, or you know, like a, a like a more broadly interesting show. I wouldn't put an Andrew Polster one, say, up there. Nobody cares. Like, nobody cares. Uh, well, I say nobody. Maybe, maybe one in a hundred will occasionally get in touch and say, tell me about this Bitcoin thing, right? But, so we've got this problem. If if we want this uh, Bitcoin thing to, to take take over and, and solve a lot of problems... Do we want still it got a to problem take actually. over? Do we want Bitcoin to be I, the dominant currency? I hmm, good question. I think I I think I do. I think I want a small country to be the test first. I don't know if I do. I would like Bitcoin to continue existing. I would like it to be usable mm. for me, and I would like it to be popular enough and widespread enough that it is usable for me because a money that's not isn't usable. But I really enjoy the opportunity for recourse in uh, the banking system. Like, I like the idea of having money that is not controlled by software that it, I can't... I get, I get what you're saying. It's like, yeah, it's like, like if someone steals your credit card, you can get the money back. And you don't have to manage your private keys for your entire wealth. Look, I get that. And, and I'm with you that... There is, there is a bit. There's like there's benefits to both both parts of the system, which is why some of my wealth is on a hardware wallet and some of my wealth is in a bank. I get, I get both. What I'm saying is, if Bitcoin was say a dominant currency, which which enforced a naturally enforced a little bit more responsibility on the fiat system and the banking system, that isn't that is possibly a good thing. So. If the people that have a lot of money now are using it corruptly and you want to investigate them, and that's a hard thing, having um, a very dominant currency 
that would make it harder to investigate them, how would that not have negative repercussions in addition to the positive repercussions? Good question. Are we talking about, are you asking about fraudulent use or are you asking about kind of monopolistic powers? So both, right? Like, I didn't cover the story in particular, so I'm definitely not an expert on it. But if I recall correctly, there were Bitcoin transactions involved um, with Russian groups that were promoting propaganda in the American election 2016, right? Do you remember mm -hmm. that story? Mm -hmm. So that's a real world result. <laughs> that is a real world use case. I'm not sure I enjoyed be having my uh, family's homeland subject uh, to the manipulation that so much money moved at once um, without permission can reap, like all, the, all that chaos. Um, I don't think that was the only factor that got Trump elected, but it certainly was one of the factors. And that's just one. <laughs> was, it that was it that influential though? And without Bitcoin, would have they been able to find another way to do it anyway? Without Bitcoin, they totally would have found another way to do it anyway. I don't think that Bitcoin is uniquely dangerous. I just think people think that the only way that someone else will use a tool is the way that you want to use a tool. And it turns out that's not it at all. And mm -hmm. as it's still so young and we can make design choices and we can make ecosystem infrastructure choices, we want to think about how it is that we can make it more difficult to use it in ways that harm people or make it easier to use it in ways that um, help people. And these are both subjective terms and are, are really challenging to work with in like an open source environment. Yeah, but I guess what percentage of transactions with any financial system is, you know, criminal nefarious use and should the rest of us face a poor choice of money options, surveillance, no, certainly not. Protects us against that. Yeah. No, no, no. So, so our, our methods of trying to curtail negative usage have failed. So what we need to do is not limit Bitcoin. It's not like, you know, oh, Bitcoin is the danger. It's think about like, how do we make it easier to use it in this good way? Because like, if it was easier for journalists to produce unbiased, high quality work, I bet you a lot more people than do today would do it. But the system makes it hard. So how do we make the system make it easier to make good choices with Bitcoin? This is a question I don't know the answer to, but when people say Bitcoin will X, Y, Z, it's like, no, 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 humans will. And how yeah. they use the Bitcoin will determine what happens after that. No? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, no, I, I see where you're going. I, I, I think we're talking about multiple different strands at the same time here. Let's, let's keep it back to like, let's keep it back to the money. Bitcoin is a dominant currency over fiat within a country, what are, what are the implications? I think ide uh, the Bitcoin idealist would say is that if you have better money, you have the you reduce the ability for the government to print more money, which protects your own wealth as an individual, which creates Bitcoin better, requires electricity uh, to use at this point. So are we imagining a world yeah. in which mesh networks are possible or one in which the government can just turn off a neighborhood? Because that happens. Yeah. Well. Okay. So again, this is again. That's another separate point. Is how would how would a government fight back against a potential for a currency taking over that isn't a, like a controlled by the government? Definitely want to ask you that question. But just let's just hypothesize that we get to a point where Bitcoin is a dominant currency. 
What are the implications of that? Does that create a better financial framework for everyone to operate within? Is that better for business? Is that better for individuals? Does that make government more honest? Like, does it solve all these problems with? I don't think it makes people more state? honest. Uh, I don't think that the. Does it not change the, the game theory? It changes. It totally changes it. It totally changes it. But the problem is, it doesn't change the people that are playing it, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, it won't make the politicians more honest that they stop printing money. They can just have another way that they administer access. That's what money is giving you, right? You're, it's giving you access to, to freedom, to resources. So if they stop printing money, then they do something else. Like, there's there's plenty of history of corruption before money printing. There's not a great history of urban, diverse, thriving, economically equal societies. There are some, not a lot. Like, so what we're saying is like, it's going to be like this like rare niche case, which is, it's hard to say like what says it's a fair society, like to who we're expecting the best possible results instead of thinking like maybe the problem isn't the money printing. The money printing makes it easy. So like, okay, so we'll remove, we'll make it harder to make bad choices. Um, that's a good thing. That's a very good thing. So it's a positive mm-hmm. outcome. But will it remove that? No. And how do we make it easier to make good choices? Because if you remove the possibility to make bad choices, but you don't necessarily like redirect the system in another way, then how can you make any guess where it's going to go? So like, your scenario is a better world, but the question is how to get there. And that's like, the really pivotal question, right? Yeah, well, see, because it's it's the we're talking about incentives here, the incentive mm. structure. Mm-hmm. Yes, the yes. responsibility for our own, our own money, the the relationships we make, the products we produce, who we do business with, how we do business, and the layer on top of that is, whilst you still have a state, what what difference does it make to the state? Um, we know, for example that uh, if the state runs at a deficit, they can print more money. We know that. And that can lead to inflation. And also that can lead to the um, debasement of our own wealth and creation. So we know that. So if we move to a, if a a particular country moved to having, I think the interesting point would be a, a country starting to use Bitcoin as a reserve alongside gold. We know that's essentially the first step towards this. But does it change the incentive structure of the government? The, 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 I guess the incentive structure of a government only changes at the point whereby the fiat system is no longer the dominant currency. There's a long way from here to there. Yeah, yeah. And, and is it doable? Yeah. Because you, you debated it with Martin. Marty, you, you don't... You, remind me, is it that you don't believe that the government will kind of roll over so easily? I think uh, it is highly improbable. It doesn't make it impossible, but highly improbable. Because, because there, there are so many factors that have nothing to do with it being good technology. It's a great technology. Fabulous. You know, there, there are a lot of different motivations and incentives and players that have nothing to do with whether Bitcoin can do the job. And people will protect broken systems that they benefit from or that are convenient for them, even if there's a better option available to them. 
Okay. Is that a pessimistic view I don't, of people? Well, no, I don't. I don't disagree. I mean, you only have to look at what's happened over the last couple of weeks. Uh, especially, I think, quite interesting just to observe what happens has happened at the White House. So, day one, there are police stationed at the White House while there's demonstrations. Day two, three, whatever, it goes from police to military police to the army to disbursement of crowds to now I saw yesterday barricades being put up. So that there is could easily be an analogy to what the the barriers and the the defense that could be built around a financial system. Mm. Uh, The White House fell under threat. They put an army around it. Then they put barricades around it itself, by the way, really fucking surreal to watch that the White House is being defended from its own people in such a way. And people who have no weapons have been defended so heavily by people with weapons. But I think that is a, is a, is, is, it, is that, sorry, you're, you're better at this. Is that a metaphor? Or is that an analogy for what could happen for the financial system? It can be both. Yeah. But, but yeah. so if the financial system, which is under threat, which is the, which is protects the government, what is the military police that gets put around the financial system? What are the barricades that are put around the financial system? Is it that there becomes limitations put on the use of Bitcoin, as we saw in China? Does it does it outright get banned at some point? What does that even mean? Does that push it underground and it becomes this kind of like cypherpunk nerd tool? Because you know you can't get rid of it. You can make it illegal, but you yeah. can't get rid of it. So how does that play out? What do you mean? Um, well, so so what your what is your belief? Your your belief is Bitcoin continue to grow, that the government would essentially put in policies or rules or things well, to stop people using it. We've seen that happen already. Restrict it. We've yeah. seen this happen. But how far would they go? How far could they go? And what would the reaction be? I am like really scared and sad to even guess, right? Because what we've seen so far isn't great. Uh, mm-hmm. We saw we see people who you know are imprisoned, uh, who lose their livelihood, law, passing laws against Bitcoin or, or usage in certain ways so that it's really risky. Um, I don't, I'm thinking specifically of like in countries where Bitcoin is really, really useful, the risks become higher. And I don't think that's desirable. That's not, that's not something that I would like to see because people suffer in the meantime. Do you think then certain Bitcoiners maybe have blind spots around this? I think most Bitcoiners have no idea what the word freedom means. Okay. Expand on that. So I'm really happy for them that they care about it. They've just never not been free. You know, well, that's like, broad, well, that's broad because we, we, you know, we, we have Bitcoiners in all parts of the world. So I think, can you like, yeah, yes, can you focus true, true, true. in on like I'm, what you specifically I'm mean? I'm saying... Uh, I mean, like, people in some ways that are like me, affluent, upper middle class, educated, who have access to computer science tools and, and financial services, and who can tweet things that make people angry and not fear for our lives. Um, we have consequences. There are certainly consequences to choices. Freedom is not the absence of consequences. But, I mean... When people get really excited about the idea that they're going to be able to make any choice they want, that's like assuming that all the people around you aren't going to be in, um, enforcing social norms, right? Like you're always going to have some kinds of restrictions. The question is, 
what is the accountability structure and what is the incentive structure. There's no like happy anarchy world in which everyone makes all of their own financial choices with no influence and no input from someone else because that's just not how people live in, in close quarters. No? Well, no, 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 that's fine. I'm, I'm, I'm following you. But therefore, do you think that leads to blind spots or... Yeah, yes, yes, agreed, totally agreed. And do you think, therefore, so when when you, I mean, I see it, when you go on and you see people's like debating on Twitter saying, you know, almost like any defense of any form of state is statism. Therefore, everyone should be fully ANCAP because that is the ultimate form of freedom, which I, I fully understand that defense. And then people talk about, well, Bitcoin is the ultimate, uh, um, it's like a peaceful revolution. Every time you stack stats, you're taking power away from the government. And if we keep doing this, then eventually we can bring the government down. Do you think that's naive? Do you think that's Yeah, brave? I think trying to bring down a, a government is usually naive. Sometimes it's also brave. People have done it. Look, like there mm -hmm. are all, it's not as if Bitcoiners are the first um, people. And most uh, rebel groups don't live into their old age. Uh, there are some who do, and, that, and like, that's what fascinates me. What fascinates me are like, who are the people that break social norms for what they believe to be moral and ethical reasons and live to tell the tale? Most pirates, for example, during like the heyday of what we consider, you know, the, the heyday of pirates in the Caribbean, died because they were caught. There are some who weren't, and like, who were those pirates? And like, how, why were they so successful? Um, there's a really great example um, from the China Seas, who she was a woman, who she's a sex worker, who hooked up with a pirate, and then when he died, took over his ships and grew the fleet to like 70,000 pirates. It's the, one of the biggest fleets that's ever been. That's not like a nation state army. They actually negotiated with the government to stop piracy. Like the government paid them off to stop. And then they like lived a happily ever after. Like, how does that happen? Because for most people, you know, if you think about, you know, different terror groups, they think that they're doing the moral thing and overthrowing the government. They genuinely believe that's the right thing to do. It does not usually end well for them. So I'm really fascinated with the idea of like, how, how do people live happily ever after and still not follow the narrative that was scripted for them? And there's just like so many open questions. I don't know how it is that Bitcoiners will be able to answer that, but I hope that many people who use Bitcoin think about these things as well. I hope they have long, happy, healthy lives that are also effective and feel morally satisfying to them. Next up, I talked to Lee more about journalism and Bitcoin narratives. But before that, I have a message from my amazing sponsors. So first up, let's talk about Kraken and why they are the best place for you to buy your Bitcoin. Firstly, their world class security makes them the most trusted cryptocurrency exchange in the market. With their 24-7, 365 customer support, they can help you with any issues, whoever you are and wherever you are. They have the most comprehensive suite of tools for buying Bitcoin. You've got Kraken.com, where it could not be easier to sign up and buy Bitcoin. They also have a beautiful mobile-first app, so you can buy Bitcoin on the go. And with margin trading, futures, and their OTC desk, Kraken has every option covered for you. There is no better place to trade Bitcoin. Find out more at Kraken.com or download the app, which is available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. Also, we have the future of Bitcoin and financial services, which is BlockFi. Have you checked out their new mobile app? 
They really did an amazing job with it. Everything you can expect from BlockFi packed into your phone. There's a quick and easy sign up. You can get started in just a few minutes, allowing you to earn interest, borrow USD, and instantly access your portfolio. You can also open a BlockFi interest account and earn money on your Bitcoin. And using Bitcoin as collateral, you can take out a USD loan. The app enables funds to be transferred directly from a crypto wallet into your BlockFi account. And that's not all. They've got so many things coming over the next few weeks and months. I will be telling you all about that. If you are interested in checking out BlockFi, I recommend you do your own research and then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. See, this is why the going back to the anthology, that's why the anthology is so interesting, because um, as I travel the world or even here when I'm even say dating and you meet somebody and they're like, well, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, I have a Bitcoin podcast. And they're like, oh, what? tell me what's Bitcoin. <laughs> and, and the really interesting thing That's is the reaction actually, you get. There's people who don't know so much anymore. Um, I, I still occasionally meet people who don't know. I mean, especially if, if you're single and you're dating, right? And so okay. what do you do? What do you, like, like one of the first questions, what do you do for a living? And I was like, well, I'm a podcaster. What's it about? It's like uh, Bitcoin. And I, like, well, oh, I've heard of that. Well, I don't fully understand it. That's usually the response. And, and then I think, yeah, I don't fully understand it either. <laughs> and then trying to explain what it is, like I think you have two choices. You explain it from your own bias. So you might explain it like Bitcoin is, you know, freedom money. It's, um, it's you know, censorship resistant. It's seizure resistant. It's, um, it's the best form of money the world has ever seen. It's the hardest. You can do all of that stuff. But actually, I think one of the most interesting things is is where you start to find and, and going back to the anthology is that is the it's the, it gives the people the ability to find use cases for them. So my use case for Bitcoin is sometimes to get paid. And it's a savings tech, technology, which I use to you know put a, stack some stats and put away for the future and a bit of speculation. And a handful of times in my life, it's been um, censorship resistance. I've been wanting to buy things which I can't buy in normal use cases. And that's my use case. It's a very tough sell to turn on somebody and, and say it's a, it's a new form of money to take down government central banks. That's a really tough sell. I don't think people should try and sell that moral. That sounds like recruiting for a kind of a political cult. Like, no, I, I don't yeah, tell but people. but a lot of people like, are doing that. <laughs> yes, they are. That is correct. <laughs> it's, uh, it's like the, the, the book Dune, you know, uh, with the Freeman. So the... Is that the one? Uh, well, I've seen the film about. Yeah, there's a film of it. Basically, like the space one. The good guys are also the crazy guys. Yeah, but that's always the way. Yeah. Well, so what's your thesis then? Going back to yours, I know you explained it earlier. But what's your Bitcoin what thesis? What like, what's the your my thesis yeah. on what Bitcoin is? Yeah, like what what is it, and what what um, like where do you think people could most benefit from using their time into promoting bitcoin because again going back to my interview with ragnarly he said in the early days bitcoin was a payment technology and it you know the silk road was a use case he said i've got a use case right now he's a gun man he's a big gun guy and there's companies who can't get funding who, who you know for whatever reason with the fiat system can get funding with bitcoin and he's like we should be pushing censorship resistance yeah yeah there is the the hodl you know, the the hodl thesis that challenges that, and some people even some people even say spending Bitcoin you shouldn't spend Bitcoin. So, and I, and and he made me rethink that. Where, where's your thesis? So Bitcoin is money, right? And 
there's a lot of things you can do with money. Some people say they're smart. Some people say they're not a good use of money. I don't think that you're morally obligated to like use your Bitcoin in a censorship resistant way. It just makes more financial sense to use other kinds of money when you can, because at the moment it's easier and cheaper. But if there's a time when it's easier or cheaper to use Bitcoin, then why the hell not? It's money. You can spend it. You can accept it. You can invest it. You can uh, like do all the things that you would do with money. Uh, for me personally, I am terrible with uh, technical devices and computers, and I am not that great at speculating on the market. So I don't use it for the purpose of trying to make investment choices in other blockchain projects. A lot of people, you know, they'll buy it because they wanted the trade. You know, I, I have no idea what would be a good trade for me, bad trade for me. That's not useful for me. I found Bitcoin for me helpful when I need to transact when I'm traveling or, or working internationally. Um, I do that a lot. And it's really a pain in the ass to carry a bunch of cash with you. But it's only useful for me when the other person's willing to transact with me in that, right? So this is why for me, it's beneficial if more people think Bitcoin is valuable because then I can use it as money in more scenarios. But it doesn't mean that I want people to have some kind of like Bitcoin cult in the way that I don't want anyone to have like a dollar or a shekel or a euro cult. Like I, I want them to know where the value comes from. And that includes understanding how corrupt the government is, right? Like if the dollar, dollar of my, the value of my dollar. Um, and then I want people to make choices that make sense based on the risks and the opportunities with that currency. There are some risks uh, to using Bitcoin that don't exist with the dollar, you know, being traced back and associated with certain kinds of uh, computer accounts or things like that. But there are opportunities that don't exist with my dollar. So I just think it's money and I want to use it. And I want to use it and live happily ever after. So this combination of things <laughs> is like my focus. <laughs> what was it like? Because before you were writing about Bitcoin and money, um, you were writing about the sex industry, right? Um, are, there, are there equally controversial topics to write about in the sex industry? And and how does the reaction to your content you are writing in the sex industry compare to, say, the Bitcoin industry? Because one of the things I've noticed is that you'll, you'll dive into some topics, sometimes controversial, sometimes subjective, and then there'll be this like tidal wave of bullshit that comes with it. Whereas it's whether you're right or wrong is irrelevant, and it doesn't matter your subjective position. As a journalist, you're obligated to, to go out and look into things, right? How does it compare? Like, How do the two industries compare? Uh, so there's a lot in common in the fact that it's a very relationship-oriented industry. Um, small groups of people that own some of the, the well-known companies. But also it has a lot in common in the sense that there's a ton of freelancers and entrepreneurs that are flooding in and really changing the power dynamics in that industry. Like, Because you just have to think about the way that media is distributed and how that influences the power, right? So like when porn was only done on film, then you needed to be able to have a film studio and someone that's going to print those physical copies and distribute them. Now that really anyone with a smartphone or a laptop can record erotic content, and that really certainly you want better equipment for better quality, but like anyone can, the entry barrier, and you don't need to rely on a distributor. You know, you could have a Twitter account and like get clients directly that way. There's a totally different power dynamic 
people don't uh, recall that actually still most of the people that own porn companies, traditional, like, you know, from the 80s and 70s and stuff, are all men. There are some women, and that's starting to change. But, like, can you imagine there's, like, an industry in which one group of people is selling work predominantly made by another group of people to their, uh, like, there's so much exploitation that's accessible and easy and, and has no accountability in that kind of scenario. As we see the power shift and more people be able to directly transact peer-to-peer, we see people still, there are some people that are, are mistreated, but so many aren't. So many are having a great time. So many are doing exactly what they want to do with an educated choice about how it is their content distributed, what kind of content they want to make, what kind of clients they want to work with, how they want to work with them. And that's been incredibly empowering for a lot of people. So when I think about how that compares to Bitcoin, I think Bitcoin has the potential through enabling peer-to-peer transactions that don't rely on a central gatekeeper to empower a lot of people, to help people empower themselves, right? You don't empower someone, they they um, they achieve it for themselves. But like, so this is good. This is like really, really good on both angles. Um, on the other hand, both of these topics make people very emotional. Sex, power, and money make people very emotional and myself included. Um, So you see people react. If I write about like a restaurant opening up, I've done all different kinds of writing. Nobody is is gonna, you know, be like writing in letters, uh, you know, tweeting about it. (laughs) Like- What the fuck are you on about? Yeah, yeah. And the interesting thing is like, who ends up getting upset? Because a lot of times people get really upset when like, you praise or you say something that's positive about something they dislike and then they accuse you of you know being really biased and when you say something positive about something they like then you're completely unbiased um so in both of these beats you have a lot of high emotional stakes among your readers so in these ways i think it's also very similar um both the sex beat and bitcoin so so you had similar you've had similar reactions to your content in both industries um, I wouldn't say that in the sex industry, I had uh, as harsh a reaction. When I was kind of transitioning into that beat, I focused for a while on research related to Gamergate and different groups of extremists that were harassing sex workers um, and other women as well, not only sex workers, but I was specifically focused on how they were finding and targeting uh, sex workers. And the reactions to those pieces were very comparable to the reactions to pieces I get about crypto, but that should tell you like when I when I say these things that like the reactions I've had in the past that are most comparable or when I was studying extremist groups should tell us something um, about what's happening around Bitcoin and that doesn't make us feel guilty it just means that we should definitely look to actively promote uh, more positive and uh, less fanatic aspects because we don't want that narrative to be the dominant narrative of Bitcoin. Yeah see that's interesting because when I do the defiance stuff I touch on different subjects and it's anything from North Korea to knife crime in Scotland, yeah, whatever. Nothing I do (laughs) drives as as much as a reaction as the Bitcoin stuff. And from people I think I'm on the same side of as well. Mm -hmm. I I think I'm on your side and you're going fucking crazy at me. Um, But I've seen it. I've seen you take some particular harsh flack some particular aggressive responses from people and i firstly i like do you do you ever like are you ever writing a piece thinking oh shit this is gonna trigger some people weekly yeah and and then when you and when you're publishing you're like i think i just need to go for a walk after i hit submit because you know the torrent's coming 
I have to, to say I wish that I didn't care, but no, I want to be correct. I feel embarrassed when I make mistakes and I do make mistakes all the time. So when I publish a piece that I know is going to be controversial, I actually want to be there at the computer for a few hours because if somebody points out something that is genuinely wrong, and there have been times that people in very rude and aggressive ways pointed out things that were generally wrong, I want that fixed as soon as possible. So a very controversial piece means I'm actually, which is not what most journalists do, right? Because it's a pain in the butt and we shouldn't expect most journalists to do this. But like, I like look for the criticisms because I'm trying to think like, it does this match up? Do I need to reassess something? Um, I'm really big on corrections. I think part of that just comes from being a less technical person in a highly technical space. Like I know mistakes yeah. will happen. There's no way to do my job without them. So I need to like, instead of thinking of that as like, a wrong thing that happens like oh this means I failed I'd be like if I proactively find all the things to make it as correct as possible that's the success as opposed to having no feedback yeah but that, that's the fact checking side and I'm with you on that and I'm, I'm not technical myself and uh, I, I you know I did a whole interview with Andrew Polster recently honestly um, I would say I understood about five minutes of the hour of what he was saying. I have fucking no idea. <laughs> and that's fine. I'm, I'm cool with that. But, but that's the fact-checking side. I'm more interested in the side where you're delving into maybe subjective ideas, which isn't about facts, mm. which is about opinions. Because I think it's important. Like, So one of the things, I don't know if you've noticed my uh, ongoing thing about nodes. Have you followed mm-hmm. the nodes, node gate? Uh, I didn't follow why everyone was upset. I know that people were saying whether or not you're a quote unquote real Bitcoiner, depending on whether or not you run a full node right now. Yeah, well, apparently I'm attacking Bitcoin now. But um, so I, a long, quite a long time ago, I said, oh, look, just to tell you or something, I don't have a node. I never have. I don't understand it. I don't know if a node is a wallet. I just don't get it. And to be honest, I'm happy with my hardware wallet and I don't really care. And a lot of people are really upset. It's like, oh, you, you should be, you should really care about this. And that forced me to make a show. But what the value I think is in doing this is you get to explore an error. So you get to explore nodes, the, the incentive model around nodes. Why, why is it such a small percentage of people have them when it's seen as so important? So I see that as an important thing to do. Yet there will be a, a portion of people who for where, forever will meme me on that. They'll be like, well, he doesn't run a node. Or he doesn't know what he's fucking talking about. Yet at the same time, a topic has been opened up. A conversation has been opened up about the incentive model. Why people aren't doing it. So I see it as an important thing to do. Perhaps the tactics aren't always right, but I think it's an important thing to do. But it's very tiring where people miss, consistently miss the, what you're trying to achieve by having the conversation rather than the point itself. And I'm assuming you have a similar when you're going on particularly yeah. challenging subjects. Yeah. And to be fair, not all my opinions are correct. And I, I feel a little bit on Twitter and, and social media and, and these places exhausted with constantly performing my gender. And it's not something that I do in regular life. Like in regular life, I'm not always bringing up women and the fact that I'm a woman and the fact that women exist and might have a different perspective on that. But I found that a lot of times when I was in these spaces, I would be one of the only women. And so I would notice other people reacting, being offended by something or being uh, spoken over or whatever. And because you're already kind of like the odd one out, you don't want to be like, oh, by the way, I differ here. And so by like all the time, just being like, hey, I differ here. So many people all the time, all the, all the, all the time, DM me and write me being like, thank you so much. I have my meetup group. I feel more comfortable expressing myself or like, you know, whatever. 
because they're no longer seen as like, oh, that extreme Nazi feminists, like feminazi, whatever. Because in comparison to me, at least <laughs> they sometimes leave, like uh, they only, like the overtone window is really important in these discussions, right? There's not a lot of real diversity in the discussions about Bitcoin when there are so much diversity in the usage, in the, the infrastructure building aspects. Like it's not reflective because the people who are loud make the people who are quieter just don't want to deal with that, you know? So if you prove that you can be yourself and still be involved in Bitcoin and not need to constantly be biting your tongue and not only biting your tongue, but like pretending, basically pretending because you want, you want to be liked for yourself. You want to be accepted for yourself. You want people to work with you for who you are and not who you, they want you to be. So like, I hope that all of those messages and emails I get like continue to be the case, but I definitely don't think that I am like, some role model who has done it right. <laughs> I've just been making this up as I go, just trying to be myself as I go. Like, okay, I'm, this, this is me, this is what I think, this is what I feel, this is how I do my thing. And how do I do that without being, without offending people who view the world a very, very different way? Yeah, but again, that's kind of like, that's that's where I find a tyrant. Like, I'm not a journalist. I'm someone who works probably, I would say, in the field, but I'm, I'm, I'm not a trained journalist. I was an ad man. You do some really before. good work, though. Thanks. And I've done some really shitty work. Uh, but you just figure it out. You figure it out as you go. But I know I'm in that field, right? But one thing, I, like the question I put to you, can you name me a journalist who has done work which is universally loved by everyone? That's a really good question. I think Christina Anapur is not considered controversial. She's a liberal. So like there are conservatives who don't like her. The, the, the CNN... Yeah, but she's widely yeah. respected for the work that she did um, in earlier in her career. Some of the war reporting, like no one can say she's yeah. not a badass, and no one can say she doesn't put her money where her mouth is. Yeah, and she's interviewed everyone from the Pope to Maduro, and yeah. But she but she it. won't be universally loved. No, 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 of course not. No, for sure not. And that's the point. I, I think I think Matthew is it Matthew Taibbi, the guy who works for Rolling Stone. I think his Maybe. name. He's pretty good. Um, the point I'm trying to make is that there's, there is nobody who's universally loved as a journalist because as a journalist, you're meant to, you're meant to peel back the layers of uncomfortable subjects. You know, if 90% of Bitcoiners believe that you should and have a node and then 10% are, well, what is that 10%? Let's go and have a look at that reason. Let's dig in. And that's what I think the role is of a journalist is to peel back those layers. And it, I think it would be help if people understood that's, that's what journalism is about. It's about asking uncomfortable questions. It's about going in and into those niche subjects that you might not agree with and might make you feel uncomfortable, but that's the point. And I think if people understood that, they would maybe therefore debate the point rather than attack the journalist. I'm not sure if that's true because a lot of times I'll have people huh? in interviews tell me like I don't like I don't want the story to be about that. I don't want to talk about that topic. And I'm like that's fabulous for you. But unfortunately, this is important information. So you can say no comment or we can, you know, we can be vague in certain ways, but we can't just avoid the topic. People know sometimes that um, that's what you're coming for in terms of hoping to uh, widen and improve the conversation. And they want to very specifically influence the conversation to happen only in one way that benefits them. They get very upset if you in any way falter from the orders that they're giving. Yeah. So Either they don't understand what a journalist is or they do know what a journalist is, but just believe that they are all powerful. I don't know. 
maybe. I, I was thinking more about the receptive audience who maybe you'll tweet out something that you've published on Coindesk. They'll see the headline, they'll see the topic, and because they don't agree with it, they will attack perhaps you rather than than debating the point. No, okay, so this is this is actually very normal though. So I think one of the best things I ever did in my career, and it was such a spontaneous thing, was I took a class about um, conf- uh, conflict psychology. It was a workshop even, not even a full class. A very limited workshop about conflict psychology. And it turns out that whether you're talking about a husband and a wife arguing about who did the dishes, or you're talking about um, a Palestinian and an Israeli arguing about who killed someone, people say very similar things about the person who's on the other side from them. And when they, they do several things. First off, the other person is deliberately causing harm. And they know the harm they're causing and are doing it anyway. And it's not because, like, you know, they, they, maybe they might say, like, greed or something is like a generic motivation, but there's no motivation that is not nefarious. All The motivation is nefarious and they're intentionally doing something wrong. Um, and people tend to believe that when they feel offended. And the, another thing that they love to do, and we, I do this too, um, is when we're offended by someone, not only did they do it on purpose, but it's a pattern of behavior. And you will look into their history um, or into other areas of their life looking for a pattern of behavior that proves they are nefarious. While the person who is accused of the, of the wrongdoing um, believes that their wrongdoing was an isolated incident and a mistake. They believe that there were complicated circumstances that led to something they didn't want. And they were right in choosing the lesser evil that they did in the circumstances that they did. Is, so these, these are the two different mentalities that the people think. So they're actually not even, like, if you can start to understand why it is the person did what they did, then you stop thinking so much that they're nefarious. But like if somebody sees you know, an article trashing their favorite coin, they're like, I'm upset. This person clearly has it out for me and is incorrect and is willfully ignorant. Yeah, I, I guess I, I should look into that. I should, I should take a look into that myself. But I don't know. I like I like journalism, which asks uncomfortable questions, and I think we're gonna have to see a, we're gonna see a lot more of that over the coming year. Uh, there's going to be a trial coming up for four policemen in the U.S., and some really uncomfortable questions are going to be asked. I don't think around around the main suspect. I think um, it's pretty clear um, what he did, but I think some uncomfortable questions are going to have to be asked about the other three, how complicit they are. And, and and some journalists are going to have some journalists will just take the very direct approach of of saying all four are very guilty and should be prosecuted. Some people might have to ask some very uncomfortable questions about what about the guy who'd only been three days into the job? You know, what did he know? What did he understand about the situation? Um, and they're uncomfortable questions that have to be asked. And I think I think the job of journalists is to un- ask uncomfortable questions. Yeah, this, the point is not to make your subject uncomfortable, right? Um, the, the point is not because you want to cause someone harm. The, the point is no. because these uncomfortable questions need to be discussed with as much identified bias as possible, as opposed to everyone thinking that they don't have a bias. And so then you need like a third party mm-hmm. to come in and ask like all the different people involved what's going on and try and come to like, what are the things that we mutually agree on? And that's what journalism is, right? It'll be so funny to me that like, people will talk about the same statistics to me, like hash, uh, hash rate or like whatever. And they'll say the same numbers, but they'll describe them totally different. Like, this is a really good, this is a bullish thing for Bitcoin. This is fabulous, this is great. And the other person will be like, this is terrible, this is awful blah, 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 this other thing is so much better. So it's not that we, first we need to uh, figure out what are the things that we can all agree on. 
And then we need to figure out how we interpret them. And that's a journalist's job. But it can be really uncomfortable for people to think about the fact that their opinion is not God, you know, like that other people's opinions might also be valid. And I'm not, I'm not excusing myself from that. When I'm like, I think Mm -hmm. about a time I'm offended by someone, right? Someone really, really, really offends me. I'm convinced he did it on purpose because he's being a sexist asshole. And I am convinced (laughs) that he's done this before. And I think about this, you know, like, and it takes time to calm down and try and remove that and be like, okay, well, if all of those things are not true and this person did not intend to cause any harm and has a logical, ethical reason for why they did what they did, then you have to start, like, it, it can be risky to be like, well, then my logic and my ethics, which are so different, like, are they the ones that are wrong or is he? And the answer sometimes is that, like, neither is wrong. They just both came from completely different viewpoints. Well, I love your work, Lee. You know that. I'm always, always chatting to you. I'm always reaching out to you. And, and, and it's not that I always agree with you because I don't. Sometimes I, I really don't agree with you. But I always like the fact that you will – I think you're quite brave and going after subjects in particular subjects. And I, I commend you and I support you. I, and I think the standing you've created for yourself in the Bitcoin world is is because of that. And I know not everyone agrees with you. And sometimes what – is, what is it that thing? Like what's worse than being – hated or what's worse than being talked about is not being talked about at all like you're you you are you might be polarizing but it's because you're challenging people and i think that's the right thing to do i try yeah and i think you should continue doing it all right well listen look it's friday night here in the uk i'm gonna uh go and have a drink with my son um we should do this again but in person next time hopefully flights will be going again hopefully i'll be back in new york and see you again soon uh what's coming up what are you working on Mm. So I've got a couple pieces filed that I think are actually really important. Um, and let's see how I describe them. Two of them deal with the Middle East um, and, and politics and Bitcoin in the Middle East. One, okay. okay. One deals with crypto and, and the Middle East and the other one is uh, more related to Bitcoin. And I have another few pieces related to like uh, different parts of the Bitcoin economy, you know, so like how people are, spending it or using it and i think those are really nice i'm very lucky that i get to write about bitcoin all the time it's pretty fun and i think in june we'll see some pieces that i'm, I'm pretty excited about well i'm looking forward to seeing them um tell people how they can follow you ah so um if you just literally google lee quinn so l-e-i-g-h-c-u-e-n coindesk then my author page will come up and that author page is like where all of my articles are. So you can always just like check it like once a week or something if you miss something that I posted. And on Twitter, I'm L-A underscore underscore C-U-E-N. So La Quinn. I will put it all in the show notes. I've actually got your page open now. Awesome. Thank you so much. This is really fun. Uh, no, it was great. And I've not touched almost any of the subjects that I wrote down to talk about. Um, <laughs> we've just jammed on uh, some ideas. But I, I I, don't know, I feel a, a slight affiliation with you because I, I think we both don't follow the full kind of like hardcore Bitcoin narrative. And, heretics? And We're heretics? Yeah, but, yeah. And because of that, we we get challenged or maybe we're just we're outside that inner circle of like the most hardcore bitcoiners and like i'm happy to be there i I like to create challenging content and i like to ask difficult questions but i I like i i feel a affinity with you when uh thank you appreciate the solidarity when the mob (laughs) when the mob comes in listen you know i love everything you do take care um i want to see you again it's been a while um stay safe and see you soon thank you All right. So what did you think of that one? Did you enjoy that show with Lee? 
I actually had a lot of questions that I didn't even get around to asking. We kind of ended up going down this rabbit hole. So when we can fly again, when I next get to get back out to New York, I will sit down with Lee and we'll go through some of those questions and some other ideas. I think Lee does some really great work and I know not everyone appreciates it or, or and she does get challenged quite a bit, but I also know there are other people who really enjoy her work and really think she does add some real value to some of the things she investigates. I'm a massive supporter of her work. I've added some links in the show notes to what she's done for Coindesk. Please do go and check that out. Anyway, thanks for listening. And if you want to get in touch, you can. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. And also, please do go and check out my Stephen Nutrim work, which is on defiance.news. And yeah, any questions, do feel free to reach out to me. <laughs> <laughs>